0: I want to thank Eliezer Cohen for sponsoring this morning. Uh, the yard site is Boy Ba Yom of Moshe Ben Chaim Dova Koyhein. That's Eliezer's father whose Yorzite is this morning. Our limit should be as chus in Eli for his neshama. This time last week, the reason why we, we we were not learning here was because at this exact moment last week I was entering into the um, into the city limits of Washington D.C. along with 19,000 other uh, pro-Israel activists, and I thought it would be appropriate to maybe reflect a little bit on that experience. A number of you, I, a number of you were actually there, and I spent time with with you there. Our shul, our shul attendance to apac last last week was actually up 25 percent from last year, which is which is a, a great, to the credit of the shul, and. Um, I want to just reflect on some of, those, uh, um, the, some, some of that from the perspective of experiencing both an APAC and a Purim in one week and also pushing forward into understanding that and per- appreciating that from the perspective of between Purim and Pesach and trying to understand the movement between the two of them. For anybody who thinks that Purim is a festival of the past, maybe you missed the news... The news uh, Item. That was just two weeks ago, on the 10th of March. If you take a look at the very bottom of the first page, that is a screen capture from a farce news uh, news website, which shows a launching of two missiles, two missiles which ha- which have range which can reach Israel, which were launched as missile t- missile testings. And in fact, there were Hebrew words reported to be imprinted on the one side of the missile, and the words were... Israel be wiped off the face of the, of the earth. I was, my first session was with General Amidror and General um, Yaakov Gilad. And General Gilad said, he used to be the IDF spokesperson, they saved us the Koso the translation. If anybody thinks that we are not living in an historic time, then one should just read the news more carefully. And appreciate that we are living in a time where, we, where a Megillah is being written and it's going to be by he, and hopefully we will have a role in that, in that movement because it's not by any chance that you see things like this happening. Such aggression, such, um, such brazen aggression that is um, being expressed in our times and um, almost ignored. And you know, it's, it, it's very reminiscent for, for what Haman says as he speaks to And the end of the Pasuk is there's no reason for the king to keep them around and that's what we're experiencing. So I'd like to reflect uh, from, from the perspective of politics in the Megillah, thinking about the politics of the Megillah and then reflecting back on how that reflects into APAC and our power or our lack thereof. So first of all, in the, in the Megillah, if we look at our most powerful political figure, he is? most The pow- most powerful political figure is, in the Megillah, is Achashverosh, undoubtedly. The Megillah starts and ends with the power of Achashverosh. Right? The beginning of the Megillah is, and it talks about the grandeur the power and his feast, which is an expression of his, um, of his reach and his ability to be able to um, consolidate his um, empire. And it ends, of course, not with that the Jews did well, but it ends with the tax is levied by Achashverosh <laughs> upon his nation. Meaning the Megillah ends and closes with Achashverosh. In fact, if you want to look at the Achashverosh the Megillah, what I would like to do is look at um, um, Achashverosh from the perspective of his, uh, the perspective of his um, loyalties. Achashverosh and his loyalties. So let's let's, let's let, to understand what the Megillah thinks about in terms of politics. Let's think about him in that perspective. So his first uh, loyalty. To his first wife, Vashti. Okay, so it's interesting that um, that actually uh, the, the Gomorrah Megillah and many other sources tell us that that really Vashti was really the most important player in this relationship, actually. And uh, the, the Gomorrah Megillah tells us in that uh, Amabayis, that, that what happens is that Esther is going to supplant the Vashti and the way it's described in Gomorrah is Vashti Harisha Bas Benoish Harasha. She was the daughter of Belshazzar, Belshazzar, um, and she was the granddaughter of Anuchadnetzar, the general of the Babylonian Empire. So she came from royalty. The Gomorrah emphasizes elsewhere that Achash was not so much of a royal figure. He married into inter- royalty. So we have a man over here who desperately needs his wife for his state. Right? What does he do? He kills her, right? So he, he, when he gets what he needs, when he's happy, when he's in his seat, the next thing he does is, as we know, he gets rid of Vashti. And um, as we've seen, in source four, and he listens to Memuchan, and he destroys, and he kills Vashti. Um, then, later on. When, uh, when one of his newer recruits, one of his newer ministers, um, suggests the destruction of the Jews, what is his response? Now, we don't know that HaKash has any affiliation whatsoever for good or bad with the Jews, but nonetheless, it's very easy for him just to pull off his ring and give his loyalties and his power into the hands of this genocidal maniac. Uh, nonetheless, when, when his wife suddenly turns around... When Esther turns around and says, "Ish Charvayev, Haman," then what ends up happening is suddenly he turns around on the person who he put the invested the most the most power in his own kingdom, right? Suddenly the suddenly the wheel turns again. But by the way, you'll notice that even in that in that in that instance, it wasn't that he was decisive about it. He needed a, he needed a harvona to sort of you know push him over the edge for that one as well. He also forgot that he he engaged. Right, and, th- and th- then then when it comes to, to re- the edict itself, then, uh, does has no idea who could possibly create a, be creating genocide in his kingdom. And then, he, and then when it comes to the edict itself, then later on, Esther has to beg once again for the removal of the edict. And in meaning, even though he knows that she's from the, the Zerah Yehudim, and he knows that there's genocide slated against them, nonetheless, Achashverosh needs to, uh, needs to be pushed once again by another request and plea bargain by... Um, by Mordechai and Esther to reverse, or to at least override, to be more specific, the, the, the decree. And you, you, the way we look at Ahasuerus in the, in the Megillah is, is really this, this, this volatile character. It's very hard to say Ahasuerus means one thing at one time, because wherever, I guess we'll call it his vested interest, or his drunken interest, to be a little more um, true to the, to the theme, seems to be, that's where Ahasuerus acts. <coughs> that seems to be like sort of the, the general overview of the Megillah about political uh, figures, about people of power. And in fact, I found a very fascinating description of this in, uh, in Rav Shimshon, Raphael Hirsch, in his collected writings. He has, a, he has an essay on Adar. The title is called, Jews in the Persian State, An Experience of Timeless Value, Vahayhi and Vahayah, per, uh, Perfection Through Suffering. <coughs> and listen to his description. He says in Source 9, In reality, Ahasuerus himself has very little control over his empire. How little of the evil that is done in his name is really his work. This man who reigns over 127 provinces uh, provinces, can be swayed easily by courtiers. Indeed, Ahasuerus himself is dominated by the very same all-powerful favorite who rules in the king's name. Haman, casting lots in the name of the king to to decide the life and death of the king's subjects, misuses his position of supreme power to satisfy his own base lust for revenge under the cover of protecting the welfare of the state. So here you have a man who can be swayed easily by one of his his courtiers based on a whim and can be drinking and having a party while everybody in his kingdom, not everybody, but a a large section of his kingdom, are in mourning. the top of the next column he says, The Jews were taught an unforgettable lesson by the events of Purim. Indeed, they basked in the royal splendor, they tasted its delights, they took pleasure in its honors, uh, had to bestow and blossomed in the sunshine of of its good will. But they also experienced the full impact of the misery that lies in store for them wherever the the wheel and woe of man depend on the pleasure or displeasure, the moods and the whims of the ruler. However, at the same time, the Jews came to know the unchanging faithfulness in the King of he- in heaven that protects them. They came to know the one sole path in which they, they would, w- would have to walk um, through the centuries amidst the misery of exile. They learned to rejoice with their redoubled fervor in the light of their own truths, their own festivals, their own joys and, uh, and honors. They learned to, res- um, to resolve to remain Jews, and nothing but Jews, before the nations and princes of the world to seek and find light in their Torah and their joy in their festivals and their ultimate satisfaction. In the covenant that bound them to the law of God, so Rav Hirsch is saying is that the, the, this volatility that you see in Hanukkah is perhaps the greatest warning sign for the Jews to remember not to trust in that, and to be very careful and cautious when it comes to the powers that be. And I think that when we, we when we take a step backwards and we look at what uh, you know where we stand as as American Jews as Jews in a um, in an exile very fortunate exile of all the ones that we've experienced we have we have a little bit of a swaying we have a pull of attention in, in in how we experience it on one hand there's elation when you go to an APAC just to uh, those those who, those who are there those who are there first time the statistics are are quite remarkable so for instance I'm um, just to give you a, just to give you a sense of the power of it just the statistics this um, this last APAC conference, we had eighteen thousand seven hundred delegates, filled the Verizon Center. There were four thousand campus delegates, which means to say that there were four thousand students on college, which is perhaps the most important, the most important segment because they're on the forefront of the battle right now. There were three hundred and ten elected student government presidents. You know what that means that means to say three hundred and ten student organization presidents were there. One hundred and six national state leaders of college Democrats and uh, and Republican college Republicans. There were representatives of 55 historically black colleges who were there. Uh, presidents of BBYO, U- USY, NFTY, NCSY, and Young Judea. Eighteen of the 18 rising stars, members of the American's Next Political Generation, featured in me- Medium and Politico. These are people who are at who APAC. Who it was quite a remarkable experience to see, and closer to home, um, we are actually very fortunate... Um, SKA was um, had the co- uh, the had the greatest concentration of students who were awarded for political activism at the conference, which is quite something. Sorry for our neighbourhood, good pat on the back for political activism. We had a just in our bus that we went down. We had a number of Rambam students, of course. It was really very impressive to see <coughs> the incredible power of it. And I would recommend for it's a, if for those who are able to have time and money to do this, it is something very worthwhile getting to and very worthwhile sending students to. Because people, especially students, are going to be on, uh, on regular college campuses to be able to see that you're not the only person when facing the BDS movement and the SJP and all the other organizations that are so vociferous and, so, and the apartheid week that we just passed, it's very important to get a shot in the arm and see that you're not alone. So you, there's a certain sense of elation. Look what we were able to achieve. Look what we are able to, to master in such a, at such a time. And in fact, historically speaking, Jews have always been politically active. You know that at the times of the Romans, the Roman Empire controlled Judea for numerous years, new, numerous centuries. And throughout that period, the Gemara tells us of the greatest of our leaders being the advocates. Or the Gemara talks about in Meila, there's a section in the Gomorrah over here, where, the, in fact, the greatest leaders of, Jew, uh, of the Jews would be the ones who would be selected to go and advocate in Rome. There's an example, one of the examples is Rabbi Shimon Ba Yochai, um, Yochai was in fact one of the delegates who went to Rome and he was, able to, he was able to exorcise a demon from the daughter of one of the Caesars which granted him access to the storage house of, uh, I, mean, I would assume, either the Vatican or one, uh, or one of the storage houses in Rome in which he went into and he destroyed one of the edicts against the Jews. Because remember, post the, post the destruction of the Besamekdash there were edicts <coughs> which were against Jewish lifestyle which intensified as we approached the Hadrianic persecutions. When the US 130 and onwards. So there, we see from, not, from early on that we didn't just sit by and experience and become the victims of our fate. We went into the political system and we, we negotiated. And the greatest of us, of our nation, went to negotiate. And this is something we actually celebrate very very loudly and very powerfully um, when we think about um, APAC. This is what Esther was doing, essentially. This is what Esther and Mordecai were doing. They were... Using their relationships and their political status in order to be able to forward the agenda of the Jews. That's on the one hand. You feel this incredible sense of, wow, we're not alone. We're doing something. On the other hand, there's a, there's a tremendous sense of hopelessness. Especially in a year like this, when you, uh, when you experience the circus of, um, the circus of um, presidential, um, presidential candidates I'm um, coming to the stage. And everybody's saying exactly what you want to hear. Because that's all they need to say in order to be able to get into office, and the day they get into office, it's not absolutely and, and incandescently clear that that's going to be the same tune. Example, case in point, 2008, We don't have to search too far. Two thousand and eight. If you could just uh, turn, turn, uh, just uh, a couple pages. Two thousand and eight, where when, when uh, the presidential candidate Barack Obama was on the APEC, um, was on the APEC stage, he said very clearly that Jerusalem was and will be always the international capital of Israel. Do you notice that in the last seven years of his presidency, not only has he refused to, play, to, to allow the American embassy to open in Jerusalem, like all other embassies, there was a Supreme Court decision which ruled against the printing in of American passport that a child born in Jerusalem was actually called Jerusalem-Israel. Because the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the the administration on this particular issue. And, of course, the State Department backpedaled and explained all kinds of things. But then when you hear it again, and you hear almost all the same presidential candidates saying the same thing, then one has to say that there's a certain sense of depression as meaning to say, How far can Achashverosh tell us that that his loyalties are with us before he turns around again? When we look at the political system itself, let's remember for one moment, in this, in this vein, who it was who went in front of the Romans. When the Gemara talks about all the different people who advocated for the Jewish people on behalf of the Jewish people in Rome, we talked about many people, one being Rabbi Shimon Yochai himself. Let's remember that the Gemara Me'ila tells us that he goes in and he, in fact removes the edict and the decree Nonetheless, let's go back to the Gemara in Shabbos that talks about the story of Rabbi Shimon Bayochai. Yochai. Why was it that Rabbi Shimon Ba Yochai ended up in the cave for those 12 and then 13 years? Why was it? It was because when in a place which he thought was private, it wasn't private because Yudha ben Benagarim was around, but he thought that was private, he was discussing the Roman Empire, he expressed his frustration about their Roman Empire, about their self centeredness, about the fact that they were just. Dis- their negative impact on the Jewish people, which is all about themselves, not about uh, furthering the Jewish, the, the Jewish goal, the goal of Yadis in the world. You understand? Here's the same person who went, who was part of the process, who advocated, but at the same time is the person who's frustrated by the process. That's the dichotomy that, that, that I think that a lot of us sense in this entire process itself. So there's a tremendous sense of elation. Look at the power we have at the same time. There's a sense of tremendous depression that you, of course you're going to give a standing ovation when you hear something like that. But then at the same time, is it really achieving anything? Are we being used? Are we the tools in the hands of people who just want our votes in order to be able to get to power? Unfortunately. The Megillah itself lays down a very important, a very important <coughs> rule at the end. The Megillah concludes with the following paragraph Perik Yud, the easiest Perak, right, Danny? Easiest Perak in the whole Megillah, <laughs> three psukim. Right? Perik Yud ends the following. You're about to think, look at this, we've had our victory. This is, these, this is how the Megillah ends. <speaking in Hebrew> So Achajirosh levies attacks on all the nations and even the far out islands. And you can read the rest of this in the 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 book of history about Moraya Because Morokai was this the, 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 the one the advisors of Akhashirj Godala he was um, he was great for the Jews, and he was um, um, he was accepted by most of his brother- brethren. So the first thing you notice about politics is the last pasuk is is it is oh, the right. so It says that Ibn Ezra, very important rule when it comes to leadership in the public sphere. On the top of the next page, he says it's not possible for one human being to make everybody else happy. Right. So number one is is that even though you could have somebody who's an exceptionally good candidate, an exceptionally good leader, he's never going to appease everybody. So that's number one. So just make sure that, you, that, that we get our expectations aligned. Right, Mordechai, in fact, the Gomorrah says that Mordechai was kicked off the Sanhedrin because he spent too much time involved in politics. Right, so Mordechai tried his best and he did a lot. But it was Rorai Vechav, most people, most of the Jews liked him. And then the, 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 the other emphasis that, that, that is in this parak is what is very clear in the Gomorrah in, in Megillah. And that is, is that... Why is it that on Thursday last week we did not say Halal? So there's three answers, right, fantastic. So Dr. Yeager is pointing out one of the answers. The Gomorrah asks, why is it that we don't have Halal on on, on Purim? So one of the answers the Gomorrah is Kriyasa Zuhilulai. This is, it's, uh, the, the Megillah itself is in fact the Halal. But the last answer the Gomorrah is what's so fascinating to me, and that is... The Gomorrah says the end. Rava Amar, the very bottom um, of source fifteen. Rava Amar, Bishlama Haslam, Halalu Avdei Hashem, Volei Avdei Paro El Hacho, Halalu Avdei Hashem, Volei Avdei Achashros, Akati Avdei Achashverosh Anon. The Megillah ends, and it's true that we've escaped near death and genocide, but nonetheless, we are back to neutral. And we are now still under the thumbs of Achash which is why the Megillah ends with his exercising his power. Meaning, don't forget, folks, that we are still, in the end of the day, are sub- subjects to this political system. So the Megillah ends on a on a, on a very lo- a, a great high, at the same time as it's tempered high, because we need to remember our context. Meaning, there's an elation, we've had a Purim, we've succeeded so greatly at the same time, as it's just folks remember our station in society. And that's, that's the tension the Megillah ends with, and I feel that's kind of the tension that we... Experience numerous times when you at an APAC, when you see these pro-Israel events. Remember, Remember, we're still in the system. We're still on the grid. Okay. Um, let's take let's take a little further. The the way that um, this is express, expressed expressed in, in the in Torah Shabbat in general outside of the Megillah is the following. Um, the, this is this is we're going to move over now to the top of page actually the middle of page. Um, we don't have page numbers here, so let's let's let's, um, let's talk about source seventeen. The Mishnah tells us in the first paragraph of our parakavas, and Abtalion mehem. So we have Shammai and Abtalion, who are two of the Zugos, um who are the pair of leaders throughout the Second Temple period. Mehem, um, uh, um, Shama, 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 Omer, Roshus. Love your work, hate Rabbonos. Now we have to expand that in context. <laughs> <laughs> and don't become known to rushus Rishus refers to powers refers to political powers in a more, in a more extreme expression of that in the second parak, the, uh, the way the way the mission tells us in the parak bay is Mishnah gimel don't just not become known to them be very careful with rishus, with government shain loyla adam they only bring people close for their own needs. They look like they're friendly when, they're at the, when they need you, and when they don't need you, they forget you. Right? So the mission, the, the mission is being very clear about our relationship to political leaders. Be very, very careful. Now you could say, well, this is referring to their times, when you see people who argue that, in fact. Nonetheless, the mission is saying, just be very, very careful. Everybody acts based on their own interests. Everybody acts based on interests, and the question is, is, what are the interests, in? and can we sustain an alignment for a long period of time? That's the question that's really at hand. When looking at this Mishnah, one has to consider it from two perspectives. On the one hand, it is very clear from the clear shot of this Mishnah that what seems to be going on over here is don't get involved. Don't get involved in Malchus, we know what they are about. And in fact, the Me'iri goes on so far as to say that we originally see this when Shaul Hamelech, when, sorry, when The Bnei Israel ask for a king, and Shmuel is told by Hashem, tell them the Mishpat amelach." And the Meiri says, Mishpat amelach means, tell them what happens when you have a leadership under a king. Tell them all the terrible things that go on, because they will use you, the government will use you as the the citizens of this country for their own benefit. That's on the one side, and that's that's what seems to be the Pshat of this Mishnah, is that be very, very careful when you get involved in government itself. Nonetheless, one has to consider the other side as well, and that is what the Maharal points out. The Maharal points out we need to read the previous Mishnah as well. The previous Mishnah ends off by saying, "V'kol oiskim imatzibru you oiskim imoyim leshem shemaim shezchus avoyes amesayon v'tzikas la'meres lo ad v'ateh mali alei alei aleichem tzchar kilo asisem." The previous mission in Perigavos, Perig Bay's Mishnah Base talks about the importance of involvement in the Sibur, the importance of getting involved for communal matters. Says the Ma'aral, these two balance each other out. It's important to get involved. It's important to be involved in government and administration. It's important to be involved in advocacy. Just be very Zahiri Baruchos. The second mission is tempering that. Just be very careful when it does get involved. It has to be L'shem Shemaim, but there is an importance of involvement. Take this one step further, going into the world, into the realm of advocacy itself. The Tosas, the Tosas Yomtov says the following: He says, "He says, 'Kosav Harav Bartanura Aval Pisha Tem mm-hmm. Tsirichim Nesvada Roshus Kedel Pakach Dal Kol Yotze Bosei Lo Amar Shmaya Kig Mitzu Mitzur Rabo He Nesvada Nesvada "Isket Zibur." Says the Tosas Yamtov, This is a caution, but it's a necessary caution for the relationship you need to have. Because you need to have a relationship with the rishus, with the government. Why? What's his examples? Um, Mordechai is one example. Who's Rabenu Hakadosh? Rabbi Yodanasi. Remember, remember when you go back to the page of Parshas us. and it says that Rivka has twins in her in her in her womb, and she go and, and she goes to Shane and Shane tells her. What's the example that Rashi gives? So Rabbi Rashi says something remarkable. You're like, you know, Rabbi Antoninus, meaning, so, okay, there's two examples in history. Rabbi Antoninus was, was a paradigm, you understand? Rabbi, what was Rabbi's prime role? I mean, what's Rabbi to be remembered for in, 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 in legacy, in Jewish history? He's to be remembered for being the author, the redactor of the Mishnah. Now, why did he write the Mishnah, the, the, the Gemara tells us in Gittin, la sh- la, la so so e that there was, there was a need. We were, we were becoming so um, suppressed in our, in, in our goddess that there was yeah. a need to <coughs> codified in at least a fra- uh, minimal amount of words. So why wasn't it done beforehand? <laughs> well, right, but the so so Hashem, that we were, we were coming to a national distress about our Torah. So why wasn't it done beforehand? Rosh Hashim tells us that the reason was is because nobody had the political and financial power to do it to the point of Rebbe. Rebbe had such a relationship with all the dignitaries, with Antoninus, with the Ro- Roman ruler, to the point that he could have a meeting place for all of Chachmei Yisrael to come to him, and he was able to record their statements and create the Mishnah. Meaning to say, his political, um, we'll call it astuteness, his political relationships allowed him to, sustain the continuation of the Torah through the redaction of the Mishnah. It says, it says, it says the tos the Yom is here in you've got to be careful, but nonetheless you have to be involved. You, of course you have to be involved. Look what Monachai achieved. <coughs> Look what Rabbi, 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 Rabbi Yehuda Ha'anasi achieved was the, was the redaction of the Mishnah through this. Of course you need to be doing this. On the other hand, well, at the same time, let's, re, let's remember the sting of the Mishnah is... Or, uh, Macarvin, they bring one close when they need you, and when they don't need you, and not necessarily when perhaps money is no longer at stake or you don't have that money they need to, uh, to, to give them, then be very, very careful, says the Mishnah. The two sides, the elation on the one hand, the power that we can have on the other hand, the, the caution of, of remembering our context in this as well. Um, in fact, this is expressed in the words of Aba Benel himself, the words of Abar Benel is talking from a historical perspective. Aba Benel, Benel, of course, lives in the late 1400s, moving over into the 1500s, where he dies in the early 1500s. He was perhaps one of the most politically active Jews in all history. He was the finance minister for Portugal and later Spain, and he became a, and he became one of the um, he became one of the higher ups in in um, in uh, Venice. Um, after his, after leaving Spain, after negotiating with, with Ferdinand and Isabella on the on trying to revoke the expulsion of the Jews, right? so he was an extremely politically active individual. In fact, when you call, you know we say Don Yitzhak Barbenel, Don wasn't his name. Don was the status of nobility that he had in, in in office. And this is this is his words when he relates to political power. It's fascinating. He says the following. He's relating to monarchy versus democracy. And he says, Mm -hmm. Look at monarchies. Look at good old dictatorships. And see the travesties that they bring about. This is in 21. Um, They do what they want. And the result is anarchy. There's no accountability. So he says that um, that look at today where you have systems where you have where you have um, um, termed leadership, where leaders are only in action or in power for a certain amount of time. He says, So he says, and those people now are now in charge. He says, This is an exemplary system. Because, in the end of the day, there's accountability. If somebody makes a mistake or does something terrible, you know what? There's a term. There's going to be an election. So, therefore, there's going to be a way to actually deal with them on. Or, or regarding their actions. And he goes on to say that, in fact, if you look, or, uh, look over here, he talks about the, uh, the, con, con, the consoli, which is the, co- the council, which was active in Venezia, in Venice, and other countries. And he talks about how the, um, the success of such systems, as opposed to a monarchy, of course he's referring to the monarchy, uh, uh, referring to Portugal and Spain, because those are the systems he was not able to be able to negotiate with whereas he moved into a democratic system. Well, Barbanella is, is expressing exactly the same defeatist at the same time as elation uh, perspective as to politics, meaning he worked with all these people at the same time. He's saying, look, at, look how powerless I was when a push came to shove. He was willing to give all his money to save the Jews in Spain. It didn't work. And nonetheless, he walks into democracies, and this is the system that, that that's successful. So this, again, is, 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 it, this is an a, a in-life, a real expression of somebody who tried and tried and failed but tried and succeeded to a certain degree as well. Um, where it comes to us over here is, is, the, is um, the responses to the, the, to the system. There's, there are three responses I'd like to, to talk about. The one response is called the rise of the Trump. <laughs> um, is when is in this system over here, where you have a system which for seven years you have a people... And perhaps even arguably, not just seven years, but 15 years, there's been a system where people felt constantly, um, constantly underrepresented by their leaders. Um, you, it, and there's a certain anger, and people feel, and certainly in foreign policy in the last seven years, there is a justified sense of, um, of, being, um, of being abandoned. And um, for, the, for that, it's important to remember some of the virtues of leadership. And Rashi says when, when Moshe Rabbein appoint, appoints the first and the, the first political leaders in Israel as their judges, Rashi says, <coughs> Rashi says in the bottom of source 23, he says, Baruch HaKodesh Shalech of Moshe Rabbeinu and Israel HaKodesh to find the political leaders. But what is one of the attributes? Anshechayel. They should be Anshechayel. Rashi says, Ashirim, they should be rich people. Why? Chein trichim lahachnifu lahakirponim. That they don't need to that don't need to, uh, to uh, pat or rub any of back because they are financially independent. And remember, the first thing that Trump always says when he gets up on the platform is, you've heard from a lot of politicians. Let me tell you like it is. And, and, that, and you know, that there's a certain anger at politicians, even those who also are held accountable to where we are today. And that's usually how it starts. The problem is that he didn't read the second part of Rashi. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the next line Rashi says, Anshe MS, <laughs> al That you can rely on their words. the Day came, ye nishmaim, so that their words should be believed. So there's 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 a balance over here. There's independence, but there's also reliability, which are two very important integral aspects of leadership. You see, the rise of a Trump is um, is a response to a lot of anger. However, there's a danger. There's a danger in leaders who rise because of rabble. You know that in history, we've seen leaders, in Jewish history, leaders who have been promoted by rabble. In fact, interestingly enough, um, there is a beautiful pirush called the Dat Mikra, one of the editors on Sefer Shoftim, is Rabbi Yehuda Elitzur, and he points out, it's in the, the top of source 25, on the next, top of the next page, Rabbi Huda of points out that that in fact was the legacy of Shimshon. You see, Shimshon was a very, very powerful leader. But at the same time, he had a lot of problems. Almost all his life, he's running after women. There's a woman, he seems, in Timnah. There's a prostitute in, in Aza, in Gat. Then, there, then there's this woman, Delilah. And he doesn't seem to, he doesn't seem to have any coherence. And there's many Mepharshim who explain this. There's a Mekhtar there's a Radak. And I'm not, I'm not sidelining, I'm not side-lining the, those Mepharshim, but what the Daedmic Christ says, and I think this is a very important thing to, re, to remember, is that a people who are at a low, a people who are a people of anarchy, demand a leader of similar calibre. And that's a very scary thing to think about. Meaning, how is it that Shimshon is really not the same as any of the other Shoftim? He seems almost to be like a barbarian. Right? Meaning to say, when we look at him, the way that he acts with other people, the anger, the vindictiveness of Shimshon is terrifying. Says, says the Dad Mikra, yes. Because that's commensurate with the, the nadir that the people are descending into at in the, in the end of Sefer Shoftim. So we have to be very careful when you see a leader who's appointed by a rebel. La havdil. In another expression of this, in uh, in in um, the, the Torah tells us that the blessing of Yehuda is lo yasur shevet. Yehuda, there's the, the the shevet, the scepter, <coughs> will never leave Yehuda, and all the Mafreshim struggle with. So therefore, what about Shaul Amalech? Shaul he came from Binyamin. Binyamin. So how could he be a king? <coughs> so the so the Ramban says in um, in Parshas yes, yes you know why there was a Shaul HaMelech? Shaul HaMelech? was there because the people asked inappropriately, quoting the Pasuk, that they asked for a king in anger and I responded in anger. Meaning, they asked inappropriately and they got a short-term king who could have succeeded perhaps. And I remember, Shaul HaMelech had his own Bechira. And the Ramban says that maybe he would have succeeded as a local king perhaps, suggested the, 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 the Ramban. But nonetheless, he was still... He was still a product of the people. You have to be very, very careful when you see a king who is representative of the people. And um, who is representative of an angry people. Moreover. Right. We're not, we're not the problem. right. So in Achinami and the Mahashunam, which he deals with as to why they were in fact wiped out completely. Correct. But that's not as much of a people, that's more of a continuing a power. So here here's the here is the fascinating thing. Is that um, the way that Brett Stevens puts it, we just had lunch with Brett Stevens actually this last Monday. We had, it was a fascinating lunch. We had, we had lunch with Tony Blinken's, this Deputy Secretary, Secretary of State. Fascinating. Very, very well spoken. Fun, fun human being. Um, and then we had Jeffrey Goldberg and Brett Stevens. Can you imagine what a powerful lunch that must have been? Um, and so Brett Stevens was asked about the Trump, and this is actually his quotation in his article. He says, their leader isn't the problem, the people are. It takes a de- the demos to make a demagogue. We have to be very, very careful with that. And I want to just tell you just how scary this is, is that, you know, I was, I was at the speech last Monday night, and until you actually are in the room and sense how powerful that man is when it comes to moving a crowd, it's hard to believe. Because there was the famous moment in the speech where he gets up and he says, he says, you know, this is the last year of Obama. And then he goes, yes. yay. <laughs> <laughs> and he got a standing ovation. A standing ovation. Now, you have to understand, there are lots of people in the room who are educated, <coughs> Democrats, liberals. AIPAC is not a conservative movement. AIPAC is, is bipartisan. Nonetheless, he brought the crowd to a standing ovation. And then with a smirk, he turned to them and he said, you know it, and I know it. I mean to say, we're all on the same side. You see what he was doing? What he was saying is, you all feel raw about the Iran deal, which AIPAC wasn't able to succeed in overrunning last year. So you know what? Let's turn that into the anger against the President. Now, we may have our views about the President of the United States. That is not the appropriate forum to express it. But nonetheless, it became a you and me thing against the them, which is a terrifying thing because you have to understand, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs just came out of the book called Not in God's Name. It's about what he calls the rise of altruistic evil, where you have people who will go to, go to subway stations and go to airports and kill people in the name of the God of love. Right? as we saw last, last week, as we saw last Shabbos in, uh, in Istanbul, as we saw in Brussels just in the last week. You have the rise of people who believe that they are acting in the name of God by killing innocent civilians. Where does it come from? And the whole book is dealing with this. One of the arguments that he makes is the following, going back to originally uh, a Darwinian question. Very fascinating. We did evolution two weeks ago, so let's come back one last, one last kick at, at evolution. There's a big question in evolutionary theory, and that is, is that why are there any nice people left in the world? No. Very simple question. If the, the, de- the development of humanity was, as the survival of the fittest, we should never have any nice people, because, you know, the nice submissive people, the people who hold the door, should all been killed out by the bigger brutes. And no longer exist. There should be no concept of altruism left in the world, because the biggest and fittest kill them all. Right? So why is it that we still value it? Why is it that we still have altruistic people in the world? It serves society. society. So how does it serve society? So the answer that is given. There's many ways of asking this question in different ways. But the answer is, is that evolution doesn't favour the individual. Evolution favours the group. And altruism is a necessary tool of survival for the group. Now that's the way you put it in evolutionary theory. But in terms of actual thought, what that means to say is that every human being has a pull in both directions. A pull to be altruistic to other individuals who are like them, and to, and to kill those who are not like them. The creation, where, where, where does war start, is with the us and the them. Mm-hmm. Argues Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, fascinating, fascinating argument, just interesting enough here, he says... He says, we can now answer the question of the relationship in 28 between religion and violence, as well as the dual nature of human beings capable of great good and also great evil. We are good and bad because we are human. We are social animals and we live, survive, and thrive in groups. Within groups, we practice altruism. Between them, we practice aggression. Religion enters the equation only because it is the most powerful force ever devised for the creation and maintenance of large-scale groups by solving the problem of trust between strangers. Religion isn't the creation of war. It's the intensification of, uh, of identity which allows for the religious wars to exist. Fascinating argument. Well worth the read if you have a chance to continue. What, the reason why this is important is because when you see rhetoric which talks about the us and the them and the closing out of the thems and kicking all the thems out, remember that in history there's only been one them that everybody hates mm-hmm. and that is us. us. Be very, very careful about people who talk about the thems. Be careful about people who at would rarely say, you know it and I know it because it's the them that we're both fighting together because someday it's going to be us is the them as well. We have to be very, very careful of people who start talking in us and them terminology. This is, this is what, what, but where is this coming from? This is coming from a helplessness of the political system. You have the rise of anger, <coughs> anger expressed in angry leaders, vindictive leaders. If I would advise you if you have a moment to read uh, the arguments of uh, a Hauer from Baltimore. Wrote a beautiful article called Trump the Movement, which is very worthwhile reading. On the far extreme, let's take a look at Rabbeinu Yonah. The other, the other response to a, a political system that we see today is seen in the words of Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah says the following. Be very, very careful of rishus, of power, of, of government. You should be very careful of the powers in the days of your." We don't know there, there's no accountability or transparency. They're very dangerous. And he goes on to describe Zimpsukim. And then he says in the next paragraph, and this is what the Mishnah seems to be saying. However, about face. If this is true, then we will be undermining the fact that we need political government. He says, We should undermine the fact that we need, we need government. It cannot be. The world depends on there being government. The kings are the people who are strong enough to be able to say, set policy, and to govern people, they are a very necessary play, uh, have a very necessary role in, our, in, in, in society. It's almost like the the, the rabbi Yon is saying: is that those were the corrupt people that we're talking about? Now, now, nonetheless, listen to how he express, expresses it. <laughs> the the, uh, the hate and the love of political leaders is not in their own hands. When you see a government acting in a particular way towards individuals, realize it's not the government thinking. It's actually Hashem acting through the government. He says, And he goes on to say, and jumping down the period to the next line, he says, Ratzel Omer, oh, actually, he says, that that, that like the diverted water, is Lev Melech, Lev Melech, actually, is the heart of the king and the hands of God. Ratzel Omer, Peleg, Hapeleg, Adam, Ha'adom, Matei Ule Kol like you have a peleg, which is like a diverter of water, as that divert a war you can divert water, Hashem, That is the way that kings operate, which means to say that the Rabben Yonah argues something really incredible. In response to looking at a system of corruption, says says, says the Rabben Yonah realize something is that the kings don't have a certain degree of Bakirachovshis at all. They are only pawns in the hands of God. And you have to think about this for a moment. You know, when we read the Megillah, I think there's a cognitive dissonance in the way that we look at the Megillah and the way we read the newspaper. We read the Megillah and we say, you know, oh, wow, look at that. That was, in fact, the Yarashem that this happened at this particular moment. And look at this in Mordechai. In fact, I saw there was a beautiful pirush that, that says that, Kimo Kibla Yehudim. What was the Kimo of Kibla that the Jews reacted to the Torah? You know what it was? It was the fact that when they looked at the situation, they did a political analysis. Why was genocide slated against the Jews at the time? What would what would have all the analysts said? All the think tanks is because, because that that fellow Mordechai, right? Mordechai just was was showing civil disobedience, and that, that created this anger among among the higher ups, and therefore Haman slated them for destruction. That that's what that's what all the newspapers would have been saying. It's a direct cause and effect. That's why it occurred. The beauty of the Megillah, Kimu of Yehudim, was the realization that seven years earlier they all accepted the invitation. They clicked yes to the invite to Ahash suda, And that was the seeds of the decree. The realization of such was the success or, the reali- or, or, or of Kim Ogu Kiblu. Which means to say that they didn't look at things in a narrow prism of cause and effect. They realized there was a greater scope and there was an accountability on whose part? Not Mordechai who was the troublemaker, but the Jews themselves. And sometimes I think we read the newspapers a little incorrectly. We look at this and we criticize and we castigate and we bemoan and we wring our hands. And sometimes we have to remember this, but as well, that the kings don't always have choice of what they're doing. Sometimes what they're doing is because we need to wake up and say, why is this occurring? When you look at a presidential race that we're going through now, how could it be possible that you could have such a circus going on right now? I mean, how, how is it possible that at such a critical stage of world leadership where there are such threats on the doorstep of all civilized nations and it's turned into a reality TV show Is there there any other way to say besides the fact that there's Yad Hashem involved over here? I'd like to tell you one way that I've heard this being used, and I believe falsely, incorrectly. And that is, I remember hearing during an election somebody once said, Don't worry, it doesn't really make a difference. Lev Melachim be Yad Hashem. The hearts of kings, the hearts of leaders are in the hands of Hashem. And you see, that is an incorrect usage because that is the other opposite extreme. During an election, of course you vote. During an election, of course you advocate. Of course you try to do everything you possibly can. In the end of the day, you say Lev and BiYad Hashem. You know, in the end of the day, the decisions made are in the hands of Hashem. But that doesn't stop us from trying to the very best of our ability to put in the shdalos to make the difference in the first place. This is being, this is using this to the furthest extreme of inaction, complete inaction, and leaving it completely beyond our control. There's a certain paralysis. In this case, a religious paralysis for doing anything. Because, one says, don't worry, in the end of the day, the king, or the leader's heart is in the hands of God. You see, these are the two opposite extremes if you consider them. When you look at the rise of a leader who is a rise of an angry rabble, a rise of a leader in response to a crowd's dissatisfaction with the situation, They believe that all the change is in their hands. They need to jump the moment. They need to make a change, a drastic change, a completely opposite change to what's going on. That's the one extreme. Then you have the other people who sit back and in a certain sense of paralysis say, Lev Melachem Yad Hashem, there's nothing we can really do about the whole situation. There's nothing that we have a place to do. You see, these are the two extremes. The extreme human involvement to the point of danger and the extreme lack of involvement, the isolationism from the political process because one believes that there's nothing that can be done, it's all in Hashem's hands, when then there's no place or role for a human being. These are the two extremes which you see developing when you have a frustration with the political system. And in fact, these two extremes are perhaps find their way into the very dichotomy of the time that we are in now between Purim and Pesach. I like to. I like to actually just do, with you investigate one last thought. And that uh, I don't. Sh- uh, thanks, Shimi. Shimi actually brought to me Mishlach Monas on Purim. It gave me a Talalich Chaim Ruchaim Kohn on Purim, um, and um, and uh, the, he says the most beautiful thought. Ruchaim Kohn, of course, one of the foremost kabbalists of our time, who's writing continues to write. He says a very fascinating insight, and that is the following: If we look at the, the the halacha, the halacha of such a year is we had two adars. Why was it that Purim was in the second adar, not in the first adar of this year? That's the gul- so the more says because we want to be, we want to make proximate one guru of the guru of Purim to the gud of Pesach. So it says that Talmi It must be that it's not just that you know well you know it's, it's thematic you know it's not, it's easier to keep up the freedom signs in our house you know for you know a full month rather than two months. Yeah. It must mean that there's some sort of theory that's that that, that that's connecting the two of them. So if you look at Purim and Pesach, they are both redemptions, but they are very, very, very disparate redemptions. Look at the redemption of, of Purim for a moment. The, the, the redemption of Purim was, in fact, instigated by... How did the, the redemption come into being? So on the, there's, two, there's, two, there's, there's two heads. On the one hand, there is Esther walking into the king's palace, advocating for the Jews. On the other hand... There's Mordechai behind the scenes, who's <coughs> like Knossos Koli but sumu Alai. That there was this Tshuva, there was this response in prayer and Jewish identity, the re- reconnection to identity and Tshuva, <coughs> which enabled that political force to, to succeed. But no- nonetheless, it is all human run. The entire Megillah is about humans advocating, whether it be to God or whether it be to the powers that be uh, at the time. That's the redemption of of Purim. Issa when you, go to and... probably, you know. the... What was that? It's what's called iserus de tata, which means the 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 proactiveness from the bottom. What's called in Kabbalah, um, it's called hashpas um, uh, nukva, which means to say it is the feminine res- um, re- um, response of guula. Whereas Pesach is exactly the opposite. Think about Pesach. Do we do anything to deserve Pesach? No. So the 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 only two things that Yeshayahu talks about is varalay varalay misprocesses bedomayich varalay bedomayich chay bedomayich chay. You get two bloods, blood of bris milah and blood of korban pesach. Those are the only two things which were really <coughs> allowed us to have even the minimum is ability to be able to escape. Loshin es melabusham loishanam is to be taken in uh, is 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 disparate midrashim which requires a little more. Um, consideration, because we're talking about Jews who had a very, very, very mm-hmm. decrepit level of Jewish identity. Pesach is the expression what about of... Right? What about ah, so even the crying out, so as Shimi is pointing out, even the crying out of the Jews, in fact, as Rapinkus points out in Sharon Bet the idea is that they were crying out, it wasn't even words, it wasn't even directed prayer. When they were crying out, you know why they were crying? They were crying because of the pain of the burden they were carrying. That was the greatest amount of tefillah that the Jews in Egypt were able to even a- 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 articulate. Nonetheless, God heard in that. He was able to translate the pain into tefillah. That's how low they were. So what happens? Hashem takes them out almost completely magn- uh, magnanimously. Completely from the side of Hashem. Hashem takes them, extracts them the way the, the Medrash describes It's like a farmer sending his hand into the womb of the cow and pulling out the cow itself completely irrespective of human action. Because that's what we needed at the time. That's what we deserved. There's the gu'ula, which is human-run. There's the gu'ula, which is divinely-run. Isarusa de la Tata, de la Eila. Right? The hashpas Nukfa, the hashpas Dukhra. Right? Feminine or, or, or masculine um, re- uh, redemptions. Now, the reason why feminine being Klau Yisrael, masculine being Hashem. right? That's the, that's the, the, the two paradigms. <coughs> they both yield two different expressions of Hashem in the world. Expressions are number one is their Bayes Rishon. Bayes Rishon is the ultimate product of the Gulas Mitzrayim. The Bayes Rishon is a time where their interaction with God, of course, is primarily who runs the relationship, who is the predominant play in the relationship of Israel, Knesset Israel and Hashem in the Bayes Rishon is God. There's nevuah. there's express word of God to the people all the time. Where we want to know what God wants, speak to Him. He's talking. He'll tell you what He wants. They're competing forces. They're dark forces as well. But nonetheless, God is very explicit about what He wants. Bias Shani, How do we communicate with God? It was no longer. There was no longer. Nevuah, Nevuah ended. Anshekinas being one of the card-carrying members of Anshekinas Lagdola. Chaga Zehari The end of Nevuah. Nevuah ends. So how do you find God? So you're saying Twitter, Twitter is how we speak to God. How does God speak to us? What's that? So there are bus calls but that's not the reason. That, that's n- if we were to wait for bus calls, we'd have very, very very big voids in understanding what God wants. <laughs> the, re- the place that it's understood as Rabbi Solokah understands in R-S-S-S-E-L-A and many other places is the development of Torah Shabalpeh through Chochmah, through Seichel. How do we know what God wants? Where did the Torah Shabalpeh proliferate? Now Torah Shabalpeh is divided into five sections. One of the be- ma- major sections was the development of humans which now proliferated. The Mishnah Perikah Avos starts at the point of Anshak Nesak like Dala, which is moving onwards to the second biased period. The Zugot, which is the whole first Perik, is the leaders throughout the second table period, where Mishnah and Torah Shalpah start developing to a greater degree. That requires looking into the Torah, using the, cultural, the enculturation of a Torah perspective, and seeing what God wants. So what's happening over here? Who's in charge of the relationship now in hearing the Word of God? is the human mind. You my God says to us, I want you to find me through the tools of your Seichel. That's the expression of what a Purim led to. The Purim led to the relationship of Hashem, which is through Yisrael, how do we find Hashem? We find Hashem through Torah through our own minds. We are at a point, and to end with these words of the Chalban, on the very last page, he says, The differences between the Bais Rishon and the Sheni are in in fact entrenched in the way that the those bottom ba- start at the two gullois show etsome gullois <laughs> shaviul ibn el ibnani maelo fehnay ha kol mushrash bisoda dukhra they are all sourced in The the masculine or feminine redemption. (coughs) Male is the expression of God, so to speak, involved in the world through Nisim and And The Nukva is where we as Knesset were involved in instigating both our connection with God and the redemption. The final redemption will be the period between Purim and Pesach a the the, uh, uh, medium between the two the idea of putting the two Gulas together why is it that Purim goes next to Pesach because we're trying to get the, the Shiluv, that combination of the two of them which bring out a greater light even than the two which bring out a greater light even than the two by themselves It will be both these ideas together. There will be both miracles and nature. So you're going to ask me now, so which comes first? Right, so let's think about the sequence of events. Where where, where are we moving from into? We're moving from a Purim to a Pesach. So he says, (coughs) So he says, How is the are going to proceed? It's going to start with human advocacy, <laughs> human involvement. It's going to get with Apex. It's going to involve involved with draining the swamps. It's going to be involved with trying to create our own state. It's going to be involved with the tools of human hands. And at the end, it will be joined with the Ora elyon, the Apalat, Besod Hanisim HaGdolim. <laughs> the day that you leave Egypt, I will show you great, great wonders. <laughs> we've seen today, says Achalban. We've seen human action bringing about geula today. Baruch Hashem, we've seen that. Thank God, we're living in such a historic time. That which is clothed in teva. We're waiting for the next stage of Gula, which is where Hashem joins the equation in a, in, a, in a supernatural way. Which is the Pesach aspect of the Geula. That in Meshach Hashem, we should see that part of the Gullah itself. And that is our journey from Purim to Pesach.